Welcome back to another episode of Zero Lift, our weekly celebration of all things motorsport. I'm your host, Mr. Zero Lift. I'm accompanied today by my good friend John and Ryan. Fellas, hello. Salutations. Greetings. What's good, homies? Uh, we uh, have quite a bit to talk about today. We're getting into a little bit more of a track-centric episode, which uh, we haven't done in a while. Uh, so it's a bit of nostalgia, uh, and we're definitely going way back in history. Um, so it's a little bit of a history episode as well. Uh, but before we get into any of all that, we have some news to take care of, and also um, what we've been up to. Me, myself, I haven't really done a lot. I have nothing significant to report on the GTR front. I did put on the reverse lights. I tried those out. They were all good. Splendid. I'm so glad I got those in America, too, which is pretty surprising for a good price. Um, and the GTR did not break on my cruise around the block. So that's cool. Um, you made it Ryan, around the block? Heck yeah. Yeah, I made it around the road. Like, uh, there's not a lot of gas in it, to be honest, because 100 octane race fuel is hard to come by, and it's a little bit expensive, Yikes. though it's... Um, not spiked with inflation and still relatively the same price, which is great. Um, but there's not a lot in it in the tank, so uh, I didn't make it very far. But you, you, sir, you had told us that you actually sold a bike and that customer was somebody of note. So tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, I sell bikes mostly to people that haven't ridden bikes in 30 years, a.k.a. boomers. Um, and... <laughs> Because I sell e-bikes, and they're like, oh, we're going to get out and ride bikes again. You know, it's just, it's funny. I love it. I love watching people that have not done an activity as wonderful as biking be able to do it again. It's a wonderful experience. But anyways, uh, this guy comes in, and he it's funny as hell, too, because this guy's like a tall, skinny, uh, scrappy-looking dude. And he has the same inseam, like 30-32 that I do. I found out when I was setting up a seat. But go-kart racer. And so I asked him, I said, well, where can I get into go-kart racing? Because I have an autosport podcast, and I challenged one of the co-hosts to go-kart racing. And I already know I'm going to beat him, but I'd actually like to like put more laps down on a go-kart track just to make sure. <laughs> and, uh, and this guy, by the way, I mean, this guy's like white-haired, like 67, 70. So he's been doing go-karting uh, forever. This guy's originally from like Oklahoma City. Um, he told me some of the stats on the go-kart. And he said, I can go out to Haiti. He drives? He, yeah, so he actually has two right now currently. Um, two go-karts that he owns. Does racing on a regular basis. I mean, his wife was like, yeah, we go to the racetrack. I mean, the guy's like, ye apparently he was racing one time, and he had his wife's phone on him, and it was like in his crotch, and then he ended up yeeting it out of the racetrack. And then the phone survived, but the case got blitzed, which is hilarious. Um, so that was really cool. I've done that before. <laughs> yeah. I've done that before. So... Um, yeah, so I he told me about Hastings, Nebraska, which is kind of middle of Nebraska. It's a three-hour drive to get out there, but it's still like a nice track that I can go race on. He said he's done racing on the I-29 circuit, which is down the road from me. Uh, I asked him about Joe's Go-Karting, which is like the local indoor joint over across the river in Kelsey, uh, he said that's a pretty good spot, but he's like, "Yeah, come out, give me two hundred and fifty pounds. I mean, uh, dollars, and um, don't watch Ted Lasso. You start speaking in British, and um, <laughs> basically, uh, come out." And he was like, "Look, 
uh, I'll give you my number of this guy and we'll train you and actually like help you learn how to race these things. And like you can yeah, for 250 now. for 250, you can get a whole day in this a whole track day. Uh, and you can use one of these souped up go-karts we have. And I was like, dude, that's perfect. That's exact. I, I'm going to have this old, older gentleman who's like a Yoda fucking teach me and like actually hone in my skills to make sure I can dominate Lenny on the track. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm stoked. I'm just, I'm just going to, just going to play devil's advocate oh, really quick don't. here. This has absolutely nothing to do with I'm your opponent in all of this. Sure. Uh, but I would say that's very anti Yoda to just stick you in a souped up track go, go kart. Uh, you know, on your first way, they're young Padawan. Well, you're not going to learn anything. I, I don't think that's the case because I actually was, it was funny. I was talking to him about how, oh, like, Johnson. how you, you Sorry, I, I was telling him about your racing style of how you basically exploded an engine in Tokyo in a GTR and like how you essentially have, have really high inconsistent track lap times. You're really fast, but you're inconsistent I, on your so track times. You don't know me. <laughs> whereas, know whereas me. like I basically take it slow. And I, I like am a, I am a big believer in, in, in slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And like, I slowly creep my deltas down and this guy's like, yeah, I like this kid. And uh, so <laughs> you're so full of shit. I hate you. <laughs> And so basically Continue. I've Go got ahead. a, I've got a home, I've got a homegrown old man that no coasts it cause we're the best coast and he, and he's going to help train me and how to beat you. And it's going to be great. I'm stoked. Hey, how well, much, I, how much track time are you getting for that? What do you mean? Like how long is, uh, how much track time are you getting? A full that? day. Like, so probably like, I don't know, six, seven hours. I mean, do- you know do you know like no, i gotta it, give this guy a call and actually i'm gonna go do research and everything like that but i, I think a full okay. day so whatever full track day looks like i'd imagine you know six seven well, hours if it's if it is a full track day is a lot of times cart tracks will be divided up into like a morning and an afternoon session of four hours a piece okay um typically if you go to a motorcycle or a car racetrack it's it is like a seven hour gotcha. track day but anyway uh, a seven-hour track day with instruction and the cart provided—that's not a bad deal. And also, he even said he said like he said helmet good. and yeah. like the neck brace, and I guess they're not going to Hans devices and go karting, but whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, just like legit, like I've got the in into the the nerdy old man of the Midwest of go karting, and he's like, look, you do a couple of like. You come out and I'll put you, we'll, we'll get you in a race. I mean, he like was legitimately like, yeah, we'll just put you back a pack. You'll be fine. You'll just be in a race. <laughs> like other I'll fucking this. people. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really opposed to his style of, great. of teaching, like very it's much like Midwest go down style. a double black on your first Hell day yeah, of Midwest. snowboarding. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Let's say this. If you go, yes, you do the full day yes. and you really get after it, you will be a different car enthusiast after that day oh i'm sure like your your perspective and the way you talk about driving and the arguments you get with me about whether lewis hamilton rear-ended max verstappen or not he did um <laughs> it's not it argument. will it will it will complete like you it, you'll feel like you just did a fucking year-long oh, sure. retreat in the wilderness and yeah. you are now a guru i went on a walkabout uh, so, and i came back from my right. journey <laughs> Right. That's right. Yeah. And so I think you should do it. Yeah. So, there you go. As well. There you go. You have to keep us updated on it. So through just me selling bikes to boomers, I essentially found uh, an inside track here, which is pretty exciting. Nice. 
and uh, John, moving on to you. Uh, I have, news for us? Yeah, I've had a bittersweet week. So uh -oh. I think I, I talked about the Tillits last week, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. So sure I got I the Tillit. I got some. It was a chronicle. I had to buy like four different brackets before because the Tillits have a weird bolt spacing, like all all side mount race bucket seats have like an 11.3 inch bolt spacing. I believe it is. Sparko, yeah, OMP, Sparko, OMP, Recaro, Brid, all have, it's like 11.3, one bolt to the next. Tillit mm -hmm. has a nine inch bolt spacing. <laughs> and Tillit's brackets were all sold out. And I was not trying to wait to get these seats in. So I found really nice, after like buying four different sets of brackets, I found a really nice Sparko bracket that had slots in it that I was able to Odd to fit and got the seats in this weekend. Had a e-brake handle out of a Mini Cooper that I was able to install in the car, and it looks like it belongs there. I'm, I'm super stoked. Um, everything like they're, they're I'm mounted. Still, I'm still very impressed with the way it looks in there. I can't believe it. I, I can't believe how, how like right it is and like the position, yeah. like it's comfortable to grab and stuff. Um, yeah, especially so, like you, you were telling me before the podcast that it uh, like rests right on your thigh now in relation to the car seat. The end of the like the tip of the e-brake handle is roughly level with my knee. Mm. Mm. It's like right and it's it's about the same height, too. So it's like just off to the right. Like my leg doesn't hit it. It's like right there. And it's it's exactly where you would want it. Um which, you know, the old e-brake handle that was in the car when I bought it was super jank. It was way down low on the floor. It was, like, behind the seat. The, the harness, like, got in the way of the e-brake. And it was, there was no, it was a, this weird little hot rod e-brake handle. There was no leverage on it. It was really hard to pull and set. And I was like, no, nah, this is, something's got to change here. Um, anyway, riding high on all that, I go to fill the car up with gas and the filler neck pops off and sprays gas everywhere. Oh, no. And I'm like, what the hell? And the fuel cell in that car, if you just look through the rear wheel well, you can just see it. It's just out there in the open. Apparently, this car, I don't know if it was the kit or the part that the guy that built the kit in it, but, like, fuel cell is, like, up, and it, it goes horizontal for a while, and then it does a 90-degree turn down to the fuel cell. And it, and it goes straight down into the fuel cell with a rubber coupler. Well, the metal pipe that he used to make that 90-degree turn doesn't make a full 90-degree turn. So when it comes out next to the fuel cell, it's at an angle. The guy just stretched a piece of rubber over the pipe at an angle and then mm -hmm. tightened a hose clamp. Because the hose clamp was sideways on the metal pipe, eventually the metal pipe was able to wiggle out because the hose clamp wasn't providing even pressure. On the pipe it's a really half-ass yeah i i i don't understand how you build a car out of a box and you skimp on like that um but uh it's very it sounds like it's very <clears throat> like a gosh dang it it doesn't it's not fitting but i could just make it work you know yeah. for now hopefully it doesn't fuck it up and when it fucks up you know, I'll fix it then. I'll deal with it. Yeah, it it's real hoopty. I'm fixing it right, but I was just Sounds excited. Sounds like something like, I would do. 
<laughs> no, I'm I'm I was excited to drive the car, but now I can't put gas in it, and I should have the parts I need to make it like proper tomorrow. And so hopefully, nice. Hopefully, here next couple of days, I'll get some laps on the car. Um, but that's what I've been doing. Word. Well, um, I was perusing the internet because I have nothing better to do nowadays. Um, and I came across yeah. Hyundai uh, doing some really interesting stuff. And I say interesting, like probably an understatement considering um, what they're trying to accomplish. Or maybe I'm not quite sure. So because I've been doing some reading up on these two and I'm I'll be specific here. The Hyundai uh, RN22E and the N-Vision 74. Uh, which the Envision 74 looks dope, very much like a 70s, 80s retro styling box. Flares, love it. Um, but one, the RN22E is electric, it's an EV, and the Envision 74 is hydrogen powered, which is very much innovative, um, even nowadays, um, though hydrogen power isn't exactly a new technology, it's applications. Uh, have yet to be realized, I would say. What do you guys think about? Let's we'll start with the RN twenty two E. What do you guys think about it? It's uh, it's not a bad looking car. It's kind of I kind of get like at Audi TT vibes. Yep, I agree with I'm that. Sloping mm. um, roof line. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a street-ish version sort of coupe sedan looking thing that definitely comes from the design language of Hyundai and the WRC. Yeah, so the chassis and the body are uh, based off of the Ion Q4, uh, Ion Q5 and 6, um, and it's just been modified for their race spec. And I guess it's supposed to be Hyundai's, Hyundai's uh sort of racing motorsport division, sort of akin to TRD, Nismo, um, and STI of the like. Uh, quick specs on it. It's got a 77.4 kilowatt battery pack. Uh, its wheelbase is 116 inches long, so it's pretty long. It's definitely uh, like a Grand Saloon type. Hmm. Um and something interesting that I, I really uh, I was diving into the specs or like how or why they're building this car. Uh, they said that there seems to be a niche gap in EVs where high performance doesn't seem to be viable, at least at this point. And so like they continually say it's an exercise or like they're trying uh, like rolling lab is I think is they're probably a marketing given kind of wording. But um, it's just really strange to me, I think. Um, that Hyundai is taking this approach. I I just oh. well I disagree with the it's strange because WRC just introduced, which is where Hyundai does most of their racing, successfully uh, introduced basically EV Boost this year. Uh, so they're now taking what they're learning on the racing side and developed in the past year or two, um, and pushing that into their basically market sellable side. It makes sense. I I have more to say about the vision concept, but the specifically in the RN22E, 
Um, I like it because one, they're advertising 576 horsepower and 545 foot pounds of torque, which is what I care about. Um, yeah, it's not slow binding. Here's why EVs have failed in the past and why they're starting to succeed today is that EVs were traditionally marketed purely on this campaign of save the whales. And that is going to get some true believers excited. Now, like, so, like there's going to be some people that are all about that, but the, the, there's no staying power in that philosophy because no. what's going to get people excited is like, yo, make a car that's rad, make it rad. And if it happens to be electric, I'll think that's kind of cool. And the electric car market until Tesla had made no attempt to be rad. And what this Hyundai platform is doing is like, hey, this is a rad car first. Happens to be an electric car. Oh, by the way. Um, I would say Tesla still didn't make EVs rad. No, but whatever. Here's no, the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about Tesla. Pretty rad, I would say. Here's the thing about Tesla. Here's the thing about Tesla. They weren't necessarily rad in terms of a performance car. However, plaids and stuff like that do have ridiculous acceleration, like yeah. otherworldly acceleration. I, and they put a bunch a of ship. they put a bunch of other features that anybody could have put into a car, but they just didn't. Like right, right. You know, the sport mode was called ludicrous mode, and that makes people giggle. Uh, it's, and it's very nerdy. It's very just. But it was, yeah. Right, but it was also a smart car. It could yeah. you could GPS program the suspension to raise and lower for your driveway automatically, right. so you could drive around low and then raise up to get over curbs. Like there was just a bunch of cool shit, and people saw that and they're like, "Yo, this is rad," mm. and it's also electric. So I'm not. So they didn't necessarily come at it from the performance standpoint, but they did make a cool car. Yeah, yeah. And this Hyundai is a cool car. It happens to no. be electric. Well, so like what I, I want to go back to me saying that it's kind of weird because high performance, especially like tracked high performance, doesn't really it's not really synonymous, at least right now with EV. Right. Um, and I and something else that I noticed uh, reading here on Hyundai is they're they're calling it like a corner rascal or has like corner rascal technology. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Uh, also, vectoring. It, it, I think it has to do something with their, the torque factoring, which uh, it does have on each corner. Um, but I think the corner rascaling thing is just another one of those wordy gimmick, marketing gimmick things. Um, oh, I'm not quite sure if that's going to stick. But People wanted to buy the Focus RS because it had the drift mode. Okay. That's, oh, you know what? You know what I'm saying? So like, like I could, and people want to buy it's a Tesla because it has a because it has a ludicrous mode. Like I could tell you my car is a sport mode. My car is four wheel torque vectoring. And the average person is like, I don't care if I say, yo, this car has got a rascal mode. Like what? Yeah. Like it's marketing dude. And, and, and in and good on them for it. It's rad. Um, It's gnar thing. Here's the other thing is that a lot of people, me included, kind of sleep on Hyundai performance cars, but their fast cars have not sucked for a minute. You know, I was I, I was just thinking the other day because one sped by me, and I'm not quite sure. It was just one of those Ultima stereotypes or yeah. uh, what. But I think it was turbocharged, um, which is not in like an Econo shitbox. It was not it was not slow by any means. They're uh, I don't think maybe it's time to revalidate the current. 
I don't think they're particularly good looking, but Hyundai and Kia have made some decent performance New cars Kias that are, are cheap. Nice. New Kias are yeah, nice. Yeah, they're cheap. They put up good numbers. Um, they're they're not bad. I think they need to find a way to make them sexy. And some of these Hyundai, I like the Veloster. The Veloster is pretty sick, dude. So the speaking of sexy, the the Envision seventy four, I would say, okay. is very sexy. It, it hits right. it hits me right in the feels with the eighties box flares. Love it, John. You right. have much to talk about it. I was holding back on this because we're talking about this other one because now yeah, let's, let's roll right into it. Let's do it. Envision seventy four is one of the best looking new car designs I have ever seen in my entire life. This maybe I'm showing my age as an eighties nineties kid, but like this car looks so fucking badass, I can't stand it. It doesn't have I, circle. It doesn't have circular uh, brake lights, but the brake lights are almost like digiplexed. They're really sick looking. I I'm sure they're not going to build it. I'm sure it's a concept that's never going to see the light of day. But hot damn, is this a good looking car? Yeah, it's um, got the boxes in all the right places, man. For sure. If this is any indication as to like the design language. It's gonna come from Hyundai. I'm mad excited because yeah. it's like Toyota came out with the Supra, and I was like, I don't really like the way this looks. And then Nissan came out with the Z, and I'm like, that's a good looking car. And this is just like another step in that direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so no, for, this... for those listening who maybe haven't Googled it or, or haven't seen any pictures of this, it looks very much like a DeLorean. DMC twelve, but it's actually based, yeah, and it's way better looking and not made a complete out of aluminum, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, uh, But it's actually based off of one of Hyundai's first uh, pony car concepts back in '74, hence the seventy four in its name. I love it. Uh, It's supposed to have. Hold on, I'm scrolling here. 670 brake horsepower oh, between uh, horsepower. battery and the hydrogen fuel cell mm. uh, with with the top speed of 155, which I'm sure you could definitely do a little bit of modifications to ECU because that's all it's <laughs> powered by. Right. It looks like a uh, it looks like a DeLorean and a Z31 era. Oh, yeah. Uh, ah, early yeah, yeah, had a kid. Um, the show. I like it. Yeah. Nobody's coming the out with hydrogen these days. I'm curious as if they're actually going to go with that because it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's a internal combustion engine, hydrogen fuel cell power, and electric engines. Um, so that's neat. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and it looks the absolute fucking business. So rock on, Hyundai. Wow. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that you will become a brand that I will actually cross shop in the future. And maybe they produce something similar to this in the future. Let's hope. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Don't pull a freaking uh, Nissan. What was that? What was that? IDX. Old... The IDX. Uh, yeah. Don't Never pull forget. a Nissan IDX on us. Cause... Never forget, folks. Never the forget. Nissan IDX. Yeah. We need to make Nissan make that car. We, we, Nissan needs to make the IDX. They're not going to. But they, 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 everybody thought they were going to. And it really hurt. It just, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still wounded from that one. Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, I don't have any clever clever uh, segue to get into the uh, IndyCar Indianapolis uh, One motor thing speedway. that was made brick by brick, though, that we're talking about this week. Okay. 
Okay, yeah. That, <laughs> it, terrible segue. John, your older brother wanted us to talk about this. So look, yeah, this is... Just get into uh, it. It's kind of a, a facsimile of a, of a two-part series, you could say. Um, older brother Jay had mentioned that we should talk about the indie car schism that happened in the 90s between CART and IRL. Um, and when we were researching that episode, we decided that we couldn't really talk about that without... We would make for a better episode if we covered the Indianapolis Motor Speedway the Indy 500 first. So this episode is going to be on the Indianapolis 500 and the Motor Speedway in Indy. Um, and then we're going to talk about the what happened in IndyCar racing because people might not know this now, but there was a time when IndyCar racing was the most, it was at least as popular as NASCAR is today in the U.S. And it was one of the premier motorsports in the world. Um, rivaled F1 at one point, I believe. It did. Um, it's on the up and up. Uh paddocks and, and and you know races are are becoming more and more popular but like if it had continued on the trajectory it was on it like i don't think motorsports in the u.s would have been like a an afterthought like they were for so long um yeah so absolutely just we just thought we should cover the premier race and the track itself first so this is a track centric episode um because people are well, I don't think that say people in our generation we were really young when the schism happened. Um, but people that are older than us know this, but people in our generation and younger probably have no concept of this, but just how big and how important of a race the Indianapolis five hundred is slash was and how ingrained in like the American pop culture consciousness that race really is. So we should talk about it. Let's talk um, about it. The IMS or Indianapolis Motor Speedway is the third oldest racetrack in the world. Um, second, if you count racetracks that are still operating, um, the only one that's older is the Milwaukee Mile. There's another oval track. Um, it is a, what is it, 2.5? Oh my God. 2.5. Yeah, it's a. It's a 2.5 mile kind of square oval. It's got two short, it's got four corners, two short straights, and two long straights. Ovals do have four corners, yes. Well, or they could just have two corners or, or a constant corner, but. Um... <laughs> uh, yes. Four turns, the banking is at 9.2, which is considered flat by American oval standards. Yeah, but at the time, here's the funny thing, is that when they built the racetrack, so the racetrack was originally built in 1909. They built it. They had no basis of comparison for roads. There weren't ro paved roads in the U.S. So, like, how to design the track. Yeah. Right. Like, how to design the track, how to lay it out. What the first paved road in America was not, was made, was start, was began construction in 1909 so it was the same right. year yeah you guys so are when getting, they were you guys are getting a little head though when how it became the brickway it's a smidge yeah okay well but but just the, the, when they built this they had nothing to compare it to it was like uh we're just gonna build a racetrack i guess so inspiration from this came from a man by the name of carl fisher and uh 
he was spending some time in France with some homies doing some auto racing. And what he noticed in Europe, and, you know, granted, this is the early days of cars as we know them, but he he saw is that, one, Europeans had better car designs than what we were messing with in the U.S. at the time. And two, uh, he didn't like the layout of most European races because they were Grand Prix style. They were road courses. Uh, you know, a lot of them were street tracks. And he he was a businessman, and he was thinking, like, if I'm a spectator and I go to a race, I get to see a car for a split second. Right. You know, like the French Grand Prix, which is the oldest race in the world, started in 1905. So, like, while he was in France is when that started. He's like, I get to see a car for a split second as it goes by. And he's like, what if I made a circle? And if you went to the race, you could see the cars the entire time they were racing. Wouldn't that be dope? Um, and so he came back to the States and got this idea of like, let's build a racetrack. And there weren't any. That wasn't a thing. There, that, like People would find roads, block them off, and race on them. And they're like, well, let's build a place where you can race and watch it. It wasn't a thing can in America. I, can I just stop you there? It wasn't a thing because he did see the Brooklands, which was the oldest but now defunct, right. which basically solidified. He was like, okay, well, yeah, it makes sense to a circuit. But then he saw Brooklands, which uh, outside of London in 1907, he saw the bank laid out, and it kind of solidified his determination to build the speedway. So that's, I mean, you got to think. All right, Lenny, what do you I got to say? Going to probably the inaugural French France Grand Prix and being like, you know what? Seeing that car for those five seconds was cool and all, but like, not enough. It's like the most American thing ever. And you'd only <laughs> see then, like going back home and being like, I'm going to build something where I could see the car all the time. And you also yeah. you'd see the cars pass you. You pat they'd pass American you once, shit. and that was it. Like because it wasn't like a la- it was just they would start and then finish somewhere. There was no like even lapping. It was just one race yep. essentially almost like circa rally style more or less back then well but you gotta think you gotta That's think great. that brooklyn's brooklyn's like you said it was built in 1907 so right. like this is all happening at the same time and this you is, know what i mean it's not like it's not like brooklyn's was up and running and successful and he was like oh shit we should copy that it was like brooklyn's was an idea and he was like oh i should do that and this is also, and he saw it once horse racing is also an influence here too right because that's like when this was a thing back then. So it's kind of crazy that like some of the races were, were being conducted on horse tracks. Right. There the on the dirt there. So yeah, I guess you're right. So there's oh, there's a lot so, of little micro influences, I think, for sure. Everybody, so he everybody was likes from it. Indianapolis. Uh he was an Indiana man from the beginning, right? Uh he was a He was born in Greensburg, Indiana, but made a bunch of money in Miami. Yeah. The reason oh, that he, he was built transferring it, some white China. The, the reason he built it in Indianapolis, though, is at the time there's a ton of American car companies that you have never heard of. Um, Miller comes to mind, uh, which was a prominent brand in indie racing. Um, anyway, not around anymore. Back in the, at the in the day, there were a bunch of car manufacturers in Indianapolis. It was kind of like a like it was kind of like the way we think about Detroit now is Indy had a similar reputation. He was like, well, you know, this car thing is going to catch on. 
got the greatest car manufacturers in America in Indy. Why don't we build the greatest racetrack in America in Indy also? How can that fail as a business venture? That was kind of his philosophy, which valid good business model. Yeah, yeah. valid business model. <laughs> right. Um, so he drummed up a bunch of financiers. Uh, I think they, they invested, I think it was $250,000 at the time, which in Today's money is, you know, Millions. a trillion dollars. Right. Um, the, yeah, the the incorporation uh, letter said their capitalization was a quarter million dollars. And the land that they had uh, bought, uh, the land that they had built IMS on was bought for like $72,000 at the time, which yeah. is sort of less, you know, and millions. I also find it funny more. that back then anyway. too, it was outside of Neapolis, and now it's like literally like near like downtown in Neapolis. Yeah, metro areas grow, man. It's a cornerstone. So uh, back in, I, I just I to move this along a little bit, and also to ask a question to you, John. Back in 1909, while they were just beginning to make the first paved road in America, what did they make? this first Indianapolis Motor Speedway out of? Yeah, so when they first paved it in 1909, it was basically gravel and tar. They would put like a layer of gravel, throw some tar on it, run a steamroller over it, and they would layer that. And mm. so they got to where it was relatively flat and firm, but uh, very, very quickly realized so in 1909 when it opened up they just did some like motorcycle races and some speed trials and stuff and um no it worked out okay and then in 1910 they had this idea to do a big like three race per year series it would be uh labor day the fourth of july and memorial day and what they noticed was that the attendance would kind of like spike when it was hyped up and it would kind of fall off. So after 1910, one of his business associates, and you remember that guy's name? We were talking about it. Oh yes. Now that you're calling me on the James a Allison. I remembered his name. Allison. Yep. James Allison. Uh, who so he, who he, like, died, he died later that year in, in uh, 1910. He really, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, he uh it's it's said that it was his idea um to uh change it into a one event annually thing on memorial day to uh what's his face carlson carl fisher yes i'd also like to point out though that like the amount of interesting races were held here like they had a event in which like the wright brothers showed up like for an aviation meet, that's pretty cool. Like, there's so many neat American things happening at this event. And yeah, in in the first in the first like two or three years of of this Indianapolis Motor Speedway opening, there was like a a balloon race. I, the first ever uh, balloon race or the first ever event there was a balloon race, um, right? And yeah, so there was an aviation race, show, motorcycles, motorcycle race. Then it was the Indianapolis 500. Um, so it was not the first thing. But um, during this early eras, too, you have a lot of very dangerous racing due to the uneven surface of it. Um, you have 
basically deaths. Um, you have the very famous, and John, you wanted to talk about this gentleman, uh, Louis Chevrolet. <laughs> Um, but I mean, you have the first day of car racing resulted in four finishes and two land speed records on day one. And that was on the shite track. Um, yeah. So that's so, in 1909 when yeah. it was still booty track initial racing. You had, uh, what was it? I think it was two deaths. on. It was a three day event. You had two deaths on day one, a driver and a co-driver. Mm. And then, uh, on day three, you had a co-driver and two more spectators killed um and also of note like during the first day of racing one of the entrants was a guy by the name of Luis Chevrolet who is the founder of the Chevy Motor Company um which i thought was funny that that dude was born in la chaudefont in the french border of switzerland and grew up in france before migrating to canada and north america and founding chevy which uh, the Chevy logo is, is made after the Swiss Chevron, I found out. Swiss Cross, yeah. yeah. Um, Chevy's not really American, no shit. No shit, yeah. hot take. Uh, reason I wanted to bring that up is that there was a lot of European influence in this racing discipline, especially compared to maybe american motorsports that are like more in pop culture nowadays like drag racing and nascar and like ah, oh, rum runners and prohibition um there was a lot of european influence in indy um and that's how louis chevrolet kind of got his start in american motorsports was racing at indy um so you could argue that like chevrolet has its Roots has here. its foundation has its foundation in the indianapolis race um, what's, anyway, what's more interesting there, I'll just, just to close the casket on Chevrolet, is that he won while driving a Buick. Mm. He did. So Buick, which came to be owned by Chevrolet later, actually predates Chevrolet in terms of history. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, also, one more thing of note here uh, before we move too far off uh, history is that the land speed record at the time in 19... 19- uh 10 or 1911 whenever that first uh race was it was 120 miles an hour that's cool. so in, in 19 in, you know 1909 1910 1911 there were automobiles going 120 miles an hour and then going off a track into a crowd of people wild super dangerous <laughs> so wild basically the triple a at this time which is a regulation for american auto whatever uh, said, y'all are doing this too dangerous and you have to shut this down or change your pavement. Now, Mr. Fisher himself worked on the first basically coast-to-coast or international road, which is made by bricks, um, and concrete roads at the time were kind of just up and up. Uh, now, it's cool, Lincoln Highway, I mean, that goes right through my great state of Nebraska. I've driven on it multiple times. It's really neat to kind of learn about that down the road. And so... Really, it comes down to them knowing the brick has been used on this great American highway uh, mm-hmm. versus the unknown concrete at the time. And so they ended up replacing everything with brick, which is just nuts to me to race on bricks. And yet it stayed that way for a very, very long time. Uh, but that's how it got its name, the Brickway. Yeah, so actually, um, they... Uh... They actually did independent traction tests of concrete versus brick. Right. Okay. And they they 
I don't know how they tested it, but I assume it was a bunch of good old boys like splashing water or something on bricks and concrete, <laughs> and dra- dragging rubber over it. Yeah, they didn't. They don't and, have the, tar- um, the tarmac testing we have nowadays. Yeah, and and they also didn't have any experience. Um, and they decided that brick had superior adhesion uh, to concrete, so they decided to go with that. Like I said, after the 1909 race, you had all these deaths, had dudes getting blinded by rocks and shit getting thrown up in their face and they're like we, we can't continue this way so they repaved the entire track in brick 3.2 million in pound bricks were hand laid over a two inch sand cushion and that's why they call it the brickway i brick think yard. uh brick yard excuse me the brick yard brick yard um i think it was paved in brick until the was after World War II. Yeah, and then they replaced mm-hmm. it with tarmac proper. Yeah, and then they paved over it in tarmac, but um, they kept a one-yard strip at the finish line of exposed brick, which is a play on the term the brick yard because now the track is literally a brick yard as opposed to a yard full of bricks. Um, but they kept one yard of bricks. Um, How cheeky. Isn't that cheeky? I thought that was kind of, I, th- I don't know if that was an accident or if they planned that one out, but I thought that was pretty cool. So um, while we're on the subject of the yard, the yard of brick, uh, you guys are familiar with the tradition at the Indianapolis 500 and also the Brickyard 400 uh, in NASCAR. Kiss, kiss the bricks, the winner. Indeed. Hmm. After you win, right. the tradition goes that you go to the exposed bricks and kneel down and give them a smooch, and just pay homage to the. I mean, this is one of this is probably the preeminent foundational American motorsport period. So it's it's just a little bit of homage, which I think that's a decent segue into uh, traditions coming from this race writ large, um, mm-hmm. of which the there were. What's up with the milk? So Let's talk about the milk. Well, no, no, oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. hold on. I'm, I'm still I'm still on kissing the bricks here because what, you what would probably it? assume uh, that the tradition came from like an Indianapolis 500 winner, but no, no, sir. It was from a NASCAR champion, Dale Jarrett. Uh, really? That did it first on the yeah during the Brickyard 400 in '96. Uh, and from there, it kind of caught on, and it migrated to being both a Brickyard 400 tradition in NASCAR to an Indy 500 and an Indy 500 tradition. And so, yeah, fun fact. Continue on your tradition, sir. Didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah, yeah, it's not a yeah, it's not a very long-lasting, long, long tradition like you know the milk. Well, the milk tradition is a longer one, and that dates back to 1936. Um, when the so at the it was actually an accident so 1936 at the end of the indianapolis 500 um the, louise meyer thank you i was like louise i was trying to look it up um, i think you got the, the year wrong as well i don't really mean to call you out it's the 1933 you're close oh i'm sorry i think 36 was when it was done the second time though like when the dairy farmers actually got involved Ah, yes. What is happening? Okay, what's going on with this milk? Okay, so look, look, Luis Meyer wins in 1933. He comes into the paddock, and when he was a kid, his grandmother 
had him drink buttermilk on a hot day. And that was like his <laughs> summer hot day ritual. Was drinking buttermilk. And so he wins the freaking Indy 500, and this is 1933. So by then, it was a big deal. It was a huge spectacle. Um, it was kind of a nationwide, like, phenomenon by then, which, oh, by the way, the Indy 500 is the largest seating sports venue in the world at right. over 250,000 people. So he comes in and wins this big race that is, you know, an American pastime for 20 years at this point. And he's like, hey, man, I want some milk. And he's got his jar of milk. And they're like, yeah, dude, you're the champ. Here's some milk. And so he's drinking. And they just I so just happen. Milk. It was his third time winning the Indy 500. So they just so happened to snap a picture of him holding up a three with a big ass jar of milk in his hand. And the American dairy industry was like, dog, we got to get some milk in the Indy 500. And, uh, <laughs> so they, they started, you know, they would, they posted that picture of him holding milk. And it was like, it, it was like the thirties version of got milk. Um, wild. And yeah. And so then I think in 1936, uh, another winner did it as just kind of a fuck it. I'm going to do it too. And then so they actually got it to where they would have a local dairy farm provide the milk and they would ask all of the uh, registrants prior to the race what their preferred type of milk was. Have it waiting for them when the race was over. Give me that chocolate milk. That's awesome. Give me that chocolate milk. (laughs) Give me the chocolate milk. And uh, and so it became a a thing. So like the, the, the local dairy industry, like, supplies a rep and they supply the milk for the race and they're at the podium when the race is over standing there with the milk or whoever the winner was whatever you said his preferred type of milk was and it's it's a whole ass thing you win you get up on the podium and you chug your milk down um can can i come can i come in here with something uh that is drink the milk related and also uh in relation to me and my in my heritage in that uh in 93, Brazilian driver uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, I don't know if you guys uh, are familiar with that name. Uh, His son yeah. uh, is now a driver, reserve driver. Uh, he won the Indy 500, Emerson Fittipaldi. So his his father uh, won in 93. Uh, instead of drinking milk, he asked for a, a bottle, a glass of OJ of orange juice. Um, one because he owns an orange grove in, in Brazil. Uh, and so I guess he wanted to, you know, pay homage to it. And, uh, he was kind of booed, denied, I <laughs> guess, I guess fruit is a no go to the Indy 500. It's dairy only the, the crowd booed him. Uh, he finally relented to drinking milk on the podium and our oh, wow. post uh post race press conference i think so chasing um, some oj with some milk that's an interesting combo in your mouth yeah not recommended i would say um but li- but listen to this the indie crowd or the indie like the audience or like the following still booed him like until 2008 <laughs> so from 93 what is up with you brazilian to 2008 
Emerson Filipaldi was booed at like all indie indie events. It's crazy. Fantastic. Uh, So I want to. I I don't want to. We got talking about traditions, but I want. I did want to circle back real quick. So, thing about Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indy Five Hundred, and the reason why you always talk about them is that what had happened was after nineteen oh nine and nineteen ten doing these little race series uh they noticed that the attendance just was would kind of wane so they made the decision in 1911 to just do one spectacular race a year that was a 500 mile race which ended up being 200 laps because of the distance of the track and they decided on that because of the average speed of the time they figured that would be about the amount of daylight they would have cover the distance before it got dark so they mm-hmm. held just one Indy 500 event per year. And occasionally they would do other events. In 1916, they had a, the, a Harvest Classic, which was like a race weekend of a bunch of various different races that were occurring at Indy. Then they took a break for World War One. After that Harvest Classic, that is the last race besides the Indy 500 that would occur at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for 78 years. So for 78 years, the only race that occurred at the IMS was the Indy 500. Wow. The race and the track are completely synonymous, and I don't know if there's any other race tracks that are that closely tied to a specific event, except for... That's so long, though. Like that predates Formula One. Yeah, I I think uh, you know, the only thing I can think of is like road courses, like Le Mans, but that's not a racetrack. That's a that's a street. That's a public road. They're yeah. like Monaco the same way. Right. Monaco is the same way. Um, the only Those thing are the I other two think of... triple crown. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's the other thing is that the Indy the Indianapolis 500 is one of the triple crown races, which is like, you know, the most prestigious races in the world. The other ones being the Monaco Grand Prix and the Le Mans, 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, like I said, all of those are both street courses. This is a dedicated track. Closest thing I can think of might be. No, I, I don't think there is anything like the closest thing I was thinking was true. maybe, uh, maybe the Nordschleife, the uh, Nuremberg, oh, but that's yeah, yeah. a, that's an open track day. You know, that's like a, a public road it's that you can do track a road, yeah. on. It's a road course, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this might be the only one that did that, and it wasn't until 1994 when NASCAR convinced them to let them run the Brickyard 400 that they kind of mm-hmm. broke the floodgates. Of note, Formula One went to the Indianapolis 500 as part of the F1 on pre-schedule between 1950 and 1960, but the funny thing is, none of the F1 teams actually traveled to the States to participate. No, but you see, you said F1, and so now I've got to do a little thing. So none of the actual F1 teams did participate. He's got to do it. Excuse, 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 excuse me, John. Excuse me. Yeah, I said F1. Uh, hold on. Uh, but you did have, and this is where you have the Triple Crown winner, uh, the only one to actually win all three, um, Graham Hill show up. You also had Jack Brabham there in the 60s. You have Jim Clark there. Um, You have a lot of guys from F1 coming over to race in the Indy 500 specifically with other teams. Other teams? 
But there was the never funny thing was, an F1 race there until the 2000s, basically. No, but but Ascari came in. No, Ascari raced with Ferrari. He was the only F1 driver that actually raced in the F1 right. season. But the funny thing was that the Indy 500 was f1 race for for 10 years, 10 years that no one participated in except for ascari once the year that he won yeah that's wild but everybody everybody was just like yeah this is a race on the circuit fuck it we're not going to show up well, and the field was just dominated by the normal indie participants because you have you have you know juan uh, fangio the five-time world champion he practiced there uh but ultimately decided against racing against it you have Modern F1 uh, superhero Roman Grosjean uh, moved from Formula One to Indy, and the big first thing he was like apprehensive about was racing on oval circles. Uh, so that just yeah, tells yeah. you how terrifying these things are to Formula One drivers, which is nuts. <laughs> like it's a it's a different discipline, and I think that's yeah. the main reason why the F1 teams didn't want to go even though it was part of the circuit but what's what's different about that and what about the f1 era in the 2000s was that the 2000s they actually paved an infield to make an f1 track at indianapolis mm. in the 50s in 1950 1960 it was just the indy 500 was just an f1 race <laughs> No one went to. No one went to. Um, Wild. Now, after, yeah, after NASCAR kind of broke the floodgates open with the Brickyard 400, um, then they started opening the venue to other places, and that's when they paved the infield and they have an F1 track. There was a lot of controversy with F1 because the F1 cars, Michelin tires, <sighs> couldn't handle the parts of the track that were on the oval. Worst. And then F1 Formula left. One race of all <laughs> time. All time. All time. Um, the, last, the last thing I think I want to talk about. Never, with happened. Andy, Never happened to me. Before we, uh, before we jump out of it is the trophy, because I think it might be the most gangster trophy in all of sporting. No. Um, that is the Borg Warner trophy. Um, so the Borg Warner mm -hmm. trophy has, a, has the recreated face of every winner of the Indy 500. Like, Casted into the trophy. Okay. And every year when somebody wins, they recreate and cast that guy's face under the trophy. That is cool, but also creepy and weird looking. The greatest trophy in all of sportism is the Stanley Cup. And I'll fight you. Let's say the Stanley Cup is the only one that has a has a has a argument. Okay. This thing looks creepy. I would agree, I would agree with I just, that. I just looked this thing up. This Borg Warner Trophy looks creepy. These faces You've never are seen terrifying. the Borg Warner Trophy? What? Oh, my God. The car noob hasn't seen something. Like, uh, 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 no, I've never seen anything. <laughs> like, I, I, Live reaction, I folks. Kinda, this thing looks creepy. Kind of get, get where you're coming from, but I will just say, like, I, I've actually been to the museum at the track yeah. and saw the trophy in person. And for me, kind of, like it gave me chills. Like I was like connecting with all these guys that came before me. Oh yeah, it's super so cool. Motors, you know what I mean? Like the, these gods of motorsports that like I aspire to emulate, and like they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're there's all their faces. Like, I I like I said, this is really cool. 
And my initial precedent is this is almost as cool as the Stanley Cup, but it's also kind of a little weird. What makes the Stanley Cup cooler than this? Bruh. Let's just, just let me just ask you it's, really quick. Give me a, a thirty second synopsis. It's pitch the, it. It's the Stanley Cup. It, no, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't. Do you not understand how the John just said that he felt an aura emulating from the I trophy look itself at the Stanley of, Cup. Past I look at the speed. So I look at the Stanley Cup online and I get an aura because it's essentially the same sort of ethos of like the inscriptions on the cup. But for me, what makes the cup so cool is not only does it have all the inscriptions of all these teams and every single player on these teams, it's what people do with the cup that makes it so freaking awesome. So no one wants to hear about where they stick the cup. Okay. Okay. I'm just saying. <laughs> and, and you have to realize that the cup's history is just – it's first awarded in 1893. That cup is old as shit, and it's the Stanley Cup. I would say that this is the second coolest trophy I've seen. But it doesn't. It's it's whatever. Who cares? It's a Stanley Cup. Look, for me, the only the only I'm thing I've out. ever the only thing that's ever had a similar sensation to me was the first time I saw the Korean War Memorial in Washington D.C. Okay. because it's a wall with a bunch of dudes etched into it, yeah. right? And it's like guys, you know, and there's a couple dudes that are like in their flight suits with their flight jackets walking to an aircraft and, okay. and stuff, just various like soldiers and stuff. And as a guy that was in the military, like felt like connected these, these warriors that had come before so me. John, right? and, John likes Greek and, statues. Okay. Well, it was just, I mean, it was just, it, it, you know, it was, it. it was a chronicle, it. you know what I mean? Yeah, it was like an anthology yeah. of these great things that these guys had done before me. And like when I saw as a, as a hardcore motorsports enthusiast, the first time I saw this trophy and all their faces are just right there. And look, I just felt like so looking that was at like the this Korean story. I agree with you because again, this is like saying the Korean War Memorial is similar to this cup you're talking about, whereas the Stanley Cup is similar to like the Vietnam Wall. It's names etched versus actual faces and statues molded. It makes sense. Yeah, they're yeah. both legit. They're both dope. Anyway, on the visual side, I'm just gonna say: Has have you ever seen a good bronze bust made? Never. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh Haters. man. Anyway, I think I think to like Cristiano Ronaldo's bronze bronze bust that he that he got gifted and it looks shit. <laughs> anyway, Indianapolis 500. <laughs> Gentlemen, start your engines. Literally, that phrase came from the Indy 500. Um, I think it's fallen off in recent years, but for a long time, it was considered one of the greatest sporting events and motorsports events in the world. Um, oh, that's our little trip down memory lane. Next week, we'll uh, talk about a little bit more modern times into the cart split. And next week, we will talk about why Americans have writ large don't really know what the hell indie is when it used to be the most popular motorsport in america what happened what happened what happened? So that was the scene setter now, um but before that we have what i wish i was driving that's the game for today yep. uh john get us into the rules and then we'll roll right into it 
All right, so today Lenny's going to host What I Wish I Was Driving. It's our automotive version of 20 questions. Ryan and I are going to ask Lenny 20 yes or no questions, trying to figure out what the hell car he is thinking about. Um, you cannot guess the car prematurely. I mean, you can, but if you get it wrong, the game's over. You only get one actual guess. And otherwise, uh, scene setter, is this generational? Yes. And oh, trim specific. Oh, jeez. And hint? The hint, um, possibly the best pound for pound fighter in the game. Fighter, uh, you know, all quick fighter to car. Is this car know. Mike Tyson? No, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Lenny, is this Japanese? It is. Knew it. Oh yeah, here we go. Oh um, shit! I can't be. Oh man, get it, John. Get it. Let's that speed hint. run this. Let's speed I run that this. It was pretty vague. Um, two cylinders. Hmm. It's not a yes or no question. I know. I'm talking to John here. How many cylinders do you think, John? Uh, it's a four cylinder. No. Does it have a turbo? Ooh, okay. Yes. Is this a six cylinder? Yes. Uh, is this car generationally from? Uh, is this car generation from the nineties? No. Had to think about it. That's good. Uh, Lenny, would this car be? Would this car be considered a Kusha? Uh, an ambulance? No. No, that's not what I asked. You, that is what you asked. Classic car. Classic? Kusha? Well, I thought you said Q Kusha. My bad. No, it is not. So not, okay. a, cl not a classic car? No. What does classic car mean? So, so for those of you that don't know, uh, like colloquially, cars from like the '60s, '70s ish are considered are called Kusha. I think they're starting to refer to like '80s and '90s cars, but historically, it's typically like '70s ish cars that they call that. Yeah. I would I would say no later than you know '79. Yes. Oh, that's what I would no, say. No, it is not. Okay, so we're probably in the '80s then, or new. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Lenny, was this car made after January 1st, 2000? Not original manufacturer date, just in general? <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay, so the generation we're after modern. is after 2000. That's a modern car. Um, Should we go after Brands? Turbocharged, turbocharged six-cylinder. Yeah, Brands is probably where we need to go. Is this a Nissan? It is. Mm, we're after the Z, I bet you. Fucking nailed it, bro. Nice. Um, <laughs> a post-2000 turbocharged six-cylinder Nissan. Mm. Oh, wait a second. Oh, speed run it. Let's go. Um... <clears throat> uh... 
Oh, buddy. Is this twin turbocharged? It is. Question 10. That was nine, I thought. That was nine. We're on 10. No, that was 10. What? Oh, that was nine. I've been keeping count. That was nine. The dungeon master says it's 10. It's oh, 10. Bro, don't make me robbing us of a question. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. I am not. Let me, let me, I am I am over here. Let's go over the questions real quick. Marking it down every Japanese, yes. Four cylinder, no. Turbo, yes. Six cylinder, yes. 90s, no. Kyusha, classic, no. no. After 2000s, yes. Nissan, yes. Twin turbo, yes. It's nine. That's nine. Okay. <laughs> Lawyered. Lawyered. Continue on, sir. Uh, is this all wheel drive? It is. And I think this is a R35 GTR. Mm. Okay. Which would make the pound for pound thing weird, but um, those things are fat as fuck. Uh, Does this car have circular rear lights? It in fact does. Okay. Um, but is a trim specific, John? So it's R35, which would be the generation. Is there a specific the, trim? He might be thinking of like the Nismo something. Uh, so would this be made by the race division of? Oh, no, 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 no. no. Okay. That, the Niz it? Nismo was a trim. Oh, um, okay. not the, it's not a race division or like AMG or anything. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Lenny, does this have a 3.8 liter V6? It in fact does. Okay, so it's probably on R35. How do you remember uh, the liter size of a car that specific? That's insane. Because I'm a nerd um uh, we're nerds yeah lenny does this car trace its lineage to cars that you and i own it sure does john okay so it's definitely an r35 okay so now we uh, lenny is this particular car a special edition of the car in question sure is special edition is this special edition named after a factory in Amori? <laughs> it is. These are weirdly specific questions. Uh, okay. Um, the only thing I'm not certain about is if R35 has multiple generations. I don't think it does. Well, isn't the number the generation basically? Well, yes, but the R35 has been around for so fucking long that gotcha. I don't know if they can. I think they're just calling them facelifts. Okay. Um, all right, look, I'm going to shoot it, and if Lenny doesn't like it, he might ask me to refine it. But okay. uh, is this the R35 GTR Nismo Track Edition? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Nice. It is in the Nismo and attack track package is what you were. I'll, 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 I'll pretty close. accept that. How kind of you. Um, how kind of you. Yeah. <laughs> what a what, what a made, guy. why I chose this and why uh, this is special to just the normal Nismo that I really like um, is that it saves even more weight. Uh, 143 pounds to be exact. 
Um, the reason why I said I gave you guys the hint of pound for pound best, you know, fighter sports car out there is because uh, back at its launch, while the R35 was pretty heavy, the way it was able to put down lap times in reference and, you know, in comparison to its weight and then the power uh, that it was outputting to, let's say, Lambos, Ferraris, Porsches, yada, 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 uh, it blew them all out of the water. And so, you know, the the marketing gimmick, which is a trend for me today, um, seemingly, is, you know, pound for pound best fighter out there. Anyway, the end attack uh, shed even more weight, uh, though it didn't really add any power add-on. It was just a re reprogrammed ECU, some retuned suspension, uh, and some fancy bits with uh, carbon. But nonetheless, it's a car I wish I was driving because it's badass and it's fast as fuck. Looks really cool, too. So R35, I think they are dog-ass ugly. However, mm. one, maybe the best-sounding V6 I've ever heard in my entire life. Good God, mm. it's a cool-sounding engine. And V6s do not normally sound cool. Um. And like you said, it's getting a little long in the tooth now, but this thing came out, nothing could touch it. I mean, nothing yeah. with a capital N, nothing could touch it. It, it was so stupid fast. Um, not in terms of power, but just the way it put the power down and the lap times it could hit, it was absurd. I really like this R35. I think my, this Nismo sick. my defining moment with the R35, because I didn't really like it, on upon launch and like years after even after driving one or two of them i still didn't like it but uh i was in my r32 gtr and johnny was in his r35 this is back in tokyo we yeah. were on the wangan or on the c1 loop just before um the rainbow bridge on tokyo bay and you know we looked at each other kind of did the thing I dropped one gear and he, in the time that I was able to drop one gear, he dropped two and was, you know, 200 meters in front of me. Right. <laughs> and so like there that then, and you know, I, I already had the top secret motor in it and where, you know, like I just couldn't, there's no way I was keeping up. There's just light years ahead in terms of technology and speed. And from, you know, from that point, you know, I gained a good, at least the respect. I still might not like the way they look, uh, you know, Big, big bodied as they are, but you know, fast so, boy. My, my defining interaction with this car was, uh, through my kart racing in Japan. I made friends with this old guy named everybody called him Iga-san short for Igarashi. But, uh, he worked at Nismo when he was a young man on the GTR project. And he has some articles written about him in like total magazine and stuff like that. Um, oh, he was, he was one of those guys, dude, you know, the type, he was one of those guys that helped develop the GTR and also had some really, really, really fast 930 Porsches. It's like, <laughs> why is it was, that? It was like the equation for a Japanese yeah. businessman that was into cars in the nineties. Like you, you had a, a GTR <laughs> and you modified turbo Porsches. Um, true enough. True enough. He, he built some funny. pretty, yeah, he built some pretty high profile cars back in the nineties and, and I got to know this dude through racing and he owned a gtr shop in downtown tokyo um i think he just called it ours uh, but it was it wasn't like a custom shop it was like a dealership but all he sold was modified 
our chassis cars. So Skylines, R35s, whatever. Anyway, he was a homie of mine. He helped me buy some parts, and I raced with him on the weekends. And one day I was down at his shop, and uh, he was like, oh, John, have you ever ridden an R35? I was like, nope. And he's like, come on. And like, he had this car. I think they just did like a mild turbo upgrade and a tune. It was probably around 600 horsepower. This is back when they were making 480, mild. I think, stock. Yeah. Um, and he took me out for a ride in it. And <laughs> it, he stepped on it in like second. And we're like in Ginza, by the way. Um, which for those of you that don't know, it's like downtown New York. Like it's, it's very tight. It's um, like Fifth Ave. And I think he got up to 100 miles per hour. And like, Damn. I was like, I was like grabbing the oh shit handle in the seat. Jeez, dude. <laughs> it was. But the first thing I said, I was like, this sounds really good for a V6. And I don't know if he understood me, but he laughed. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would. That's amazing. Uh, some of the exhaust on the, uh, the R35. It's really good. Well, folks. Uh, we've run it long and a tooth enough for this episode. Uh, please, uh, catch us on Instagram and Twitter at zero lift podcast. Also in the bio of both those profiles, you'll find a discord link. Make sure to click it and invite yourself over to our discord server. We'd love to chat with you in our pit lane. Uh, we're trying to grow our community a little bit, kind of, um, connect and extend, uh, to, uh, car enthusiasts grow our own community and just get to know each other and, uh, and our listeners and maybe have you guys on the show for interview who knows we'll see but uh come join us anyway this has been another episode of zero lift uh y'all have a good one peace keep it pinned